My name is Brian. the Lord. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncir uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But it, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Most holy and precious Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for giving us what we need and for giving us of our sins. Help us to forgive those that sin against us and move us away from doing evil and even sinning ourselves. And make us victorious over our flesh and deliver us from all the evil that is so easy to get tangled up in. Because we know that you are great and worthy to be praised. And you deserve all the glory and all the honor that we are capable of even giving. So help us to be worthy of worshiping you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Father, your word is a light and a lamp. It helps us to know where to go and how to go there. It builds the love of Christ. It illumines our life. It enriches us. It encourages us. It edifies us. And God, we're grateful. Today, now, as we turn to your word, we pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be very much in evidence today. That this would not be one person talking to a group of others, but that God would be speaking. So give us ears and hearts to listen. Open the eyes of our hearts and be glorified today, Jesus, as we go through this text, which is so rich and so full. God, keep us focused today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, we continue this week in Ephesians chapter 2, and we come to these five verses that are really the heart and soul of the entire letter. Verses 18 through 14 through 18, chapter 2, the heart and soul of Ephesians is right here. Last week in verses 11 to 13, we saw Paul begin that section by addressing an issue that he confronted every day as he was planting churches in the Roman Empire, which was made up of both Jew and Gentile. Those two groups, Jew and Gentile, were, as we saw, by nature hostile to one another. But in this section of Ephesians, Paul is explaining what God has done to unify these two disparate groups together in his son Jesus. Paul calls the Gentiles 
to remember that even though they hadn't received any of the advantages that God had given to prepare the Jews for their Messiah, God saved them even without these. Paul wants the Gentiles to remember that the spiritual disadvantages they were operating under, he wants them to remember that for two reasons. First, so that they will be filled with gratitude for their salvation given by God to them without any spiritual preparation. Second, so that they would realize the debt that they owed the Jews who had gone before them and paved the way for them to know this Jewish Savior. At the same time, Paul reminds the Jews that the circumcision that made the Jews externally different from the Gentiles and of which they were so proud, he wants to remind the Jews that that circumcision did nothing to bring them closer to God. Because to use Paul's word, it was a circumcision made in the flesh with hands. That is, it was just an external sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Jews required to be made right with God was not some sort of ceremonial rite of circumcision. What they needed was a new heart. Or as the Old Testament prophets said, they need their heart circumcised. Paul concludes this part of chapter 2 and verse 13 where he says to the Gentiles, But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now that sentence is so absolutely chock full to the brim in meaning and significance that Paul spends the next four verses explaining what it is. He just unpacks all the richness in there. What does it mean to be brought near by the blood of Christ? Paul is explaining to both Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus that Christ's death on the cross purchased reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, and of course, between God and all sinners. So Paul continues to work on two fronts, Jew and Gentile here. He wants both the Jews and the Gentiles to see that through the blood of Christ, God has not only removed his own alienation from them, adopting them as his children, but in this section that we're going to be focusing on today mostly, Paul is also striving to help these two groups see that through Christ, God has removed the source of hostility that had separated them from one another. That's his point. So let's read again, verses just 13 to 18. It's really 14 to 18, but 13 is like the springboard that gets us in. So we're going to read 13 as well. But now in Christ Jesus, you, and he's talking about Gentiles here, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have, both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now that text is so typical of Paul, and that text may have been on Peter's mind when he said, you know, Paul is sometimes hard to understand. He may have been thinking about this text. This is not an easy text, and it is so full of meaning. Paul begins explaining how Jesus accomplishes this unity between Jew and Gentile 
by declaring, Jesus, he himself, is our peace, who has made us both one. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the great peacemaker, even to the point where Paul refers to him as our peace. Peace between God and the sinner, and surprisingly, peace between Jew and the Gentile are found in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. The question is, how? How does that make peace? How does Jesus, through the cross, make this peace horizontally between two groups of people, and then, of course, vertically between God and sinners? Paul's answer is that Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What on earth does that mean? It's okay to ask that. The dividing wall of hostility is a metaphor Paul uses to picture the huge barrier that separated Jew and Gentile. When Paul says that Jesus has broken down in his flesh that barrier, he's talking about the cross because in the cross his flesh was torn. And he's just repeating what he already said in verse 13 when he tells the Gentiles that they've been brought near to him by the blood of Christ. That's the cross, obviously. But what does Paul mean in verse 15 when he says that this dividing wall of hostility between, in this case, Jew and Gentile, has been broken down by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Again, these, this material is not all that familiar for most believers. When Paul refers to the law, he's not just talking about the ceremonial law. He's not talking about the moral law. He's talking about all the law of Moses here which means that somehow the law of Moses in the Old Testament is the barrier separating and bringing hostility between Jew and Gentile. Okay, that's where Paul is taking us this morning. So let's unpack it, and we're going to do that by asking three questions. The first question is, how? How is the law of Moses a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile? How does the Jewish law divide two groups of people? Jew and Gentile. Second question, how does Christ's death on the cross abolish the law of Moses? How does the crucifixion in Jesus Christ in some way cancel the law of Moses? And third, what does Paul mean by abolishing the law? I mean, in what sense did Christ abolish the law? Does it mean we can do whatever we want now? I don't think so. What role does the law play for people who are Christians? What role does the Old Testament law play for Christians? What's the proper place of the law in our lives? How should we view the law? So how is the law of Moses a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile? How does Christ's death on the cross abolish the law of Moses? And what does Paul mean by abolishing the law? That's where we're going. Have you perceived that there is a lot of material here, some of which is unfamiliar to many believers? This is one of the most difficult texts in the book of Ephesians, which is well known to be filled with difficult texts. So if you find yourself circling the drain or running test patterns, work hard at staying grounded here. Don't just leave these three questions hanging out there. I may not be capable of keeping your attention, but God can overcome the difficulties, and we trust that he will because it's very important. What he's saying, though it's difficult to understand sometimes, this is very important material. First, we know that Paul reveals here that the law of Moses was this barrier separating not only God from sinners, but also Jew from Gentile. 
So the first question is, how did the law of Moses act as a barrier between Jew and Gentile? Well, let me just give you three answers, a couple of which you will intuit, I think. First answer, one of God's purposes for the law was to set the Jews apart from the rest of the Gentile world. Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8, speaking of the laws and commandments, he tells the Jews, listen to what he says here. He says, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Do you hear? In that verse, in those verses, he is showing you're going to be different. The Jews are different than the Gentiles, and your laws and the way that you govern your people, Yahweh, is so excellent, the other nations are going to say, wow. So inherent in the law is this purpose to separate Jew and Gentile, because the Jews are so wonderfully ruled, it shows the wisdom and compassion and integrity and holiness of God in a way that no other governance does, and it's impressive to other people. And so by its very nature, because it's there to set apart the Jew from the Gentile, it's a barrier. A second way the law of Moses divided the Jew and Gentiles is that there were social barriers built into the law that made it difficult, frankly, it made it impossible for Jews and Gentiles to be anything more than mild acquaintances. For instance, let's say you're working alongside a Jew at work as a Gentile. You kind of like the person. You decide you want to have them over for dinner. Well, forget it. They're not going to come over for dinner because eating in your home would defile them ceremonially. But just, just for the sake of argument, let's assume that they might be open to this. Well, if you're going to make that date and you're going to have that Jew into your home for food, you're going to need to research and you're going to need to observe rather complicated kosher Jewish food laws. So that's going to determine what you eat. You're also not going to invite this person over on the Sabbath, and you better not violate any other Jewish ceremonial laws, most of which you would have no idea were even written. For instance, if you have a suspicious rash on your skin or mold on the interior walls of your home, he ain't coming in. And you don't know that, and you don't understand why. I hope you hear that you can see that these social barriers, these cultural barriers, are part of the law. The law separates Jew and Gentile because the cultures were so different, and mostly what separates the cultures is the existence of the law for the Jews. A third way the law of Moses separated the Jews and the Gentiles was the sinful way in which the Jews took pride in their laws, which resulted in them looking down their nose at the Gentiles. They were condescending toward the Gentiles. So it wasn't just the law itself that was a barrier. It was also the pride that the Jews manifested because they were alone, God's chosen people governed by God's holy law. They had a corner on that market. Now, even though the law with its impossible standards, should have actually humbled the Jews by powerfully revealing to them how sinful they were, the prideful Jews instead became puffed up because they uniquely possessed the law. It's in that context of racial division that Paul reveals that when Jesus died on the cross, he removed this barrier that the Mosaic law separated the Jews and the Gentiles. 
So in light of the fact that the law of Moses was this dividing barrier that needed to be abolished, the second question is, how does Christ's death on the cross abolish the law of Moses? How does that work? Because that's clearly what Paul is saying. This is, this is his flesh, his blood on the cross. Well, the broad answer is Jesus' death on the cross nullifies. It cancels the Mosaic law. Again, what does that mean? That's a very important point. So I'm going to give you a four-minute mini-seminar on how the cross nullifies the law and how Christians should relate to the Old Testament law. This is really important because in chapter 5, when he quotes the fifth commandment, how are you as a Christian supposed to relate to that? There are lots of quotations in the, Old, in the New Testament of the law. How are you supposed to take that? And how does that fit in with the fact that the law has been nullified when Jesus died on the cross? The Mosaic law was God's chosen instrument to govern the Jewish people for 1,500 years, from the time of Moses, that's why they call it the Mosaic law, until Jesus died on the cross. And God always intended the law to be temporary. The Old Testament prophets said as much, and Paul says as much in Galatians 3.24. Paul reveals that, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law, in some way, which we're not going to get into, served an interim purpose until Jesus died and brought forth a fully developed New Testament doctrine of justification by faith, which is far superior than the law. What I mean by that is when Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. He kept all the law to the T perfectly. And by doing that, he fulfilled the law as a human being. He fulfilled the requirements of the law for humanity for anyone who would trust in him and be justified by faith, being given the very righteousness of Christ. That is, to put it more simply, he kept the law for us. He kept the law in our place so that we, on our own, will never be held to the standard of perfection given by the law because Jesus kept it for us in our place. We must never forget that the gospel reveals not only that Jesus died in our place, but he also lived a perfect life and kept God's law in our place. And because that's true, believers are no longer subject to the Mosaic law. But, that does not mean that we're lawless. Okay, I just said a paradox. Those two sentences have tension within it. You should feel that tension. What does that mean? That the law has been nullified, but we're not to live lawlessly. What exactly is our relationship to the Jewish law? What place should it have in our lives? Again, this is really important to get right because the New Testament does contain many commands directly from the law of Moses. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, notice it says this is the love of God, not the legal demand of God, which you're going to find out is very important. The law of Moses is very valuable for the Christian, but not because we are legally bound to keep it, but because for the believer, 
One purpose of the law is to reveal very important truths. The Old Testament law reveals an awful lot about the holy character of what God is like. It reveals in a general way what the will of God is. And perhaps most importantly, the law shows us how sinful we are and how desperately we need a Savior. And this is Paul's big article in Romans chapter 7, where he says in verse 7, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. So the law powerfully reveals to us our sinfulness, our open rebellion against God. Now what can make this confusing, again, is in his letters, Paul cites these various commandments out of Mosaic law. But because of what Jesus has done, and this is really important, Paul no longer sees those commands as the old covenant law of God. He instead now understands those laws to be part of the law of Christ. James calls it the royal law. He calls it the law of Christ in places like Galatians 6.2 and 1 Corinthians 9.21. But Galatians 5.14 gets us to the heart of how we as believers are to relate or to understand the Jewish law for our lives on a very practical level. Paul says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now he's quoting right there Leviticus 19.18. So he clearly reveres Old Testament law, but for Paul, the main emphasis for the believer should be living in a way that expresses God's love rather than obeying God's law. Love is the essence of the Christian ethic for living. So how does the law contribute to cause us to live in love. Tom Schreiner, who's a wonderful New Testament scholar, one of my professors in, in seminary, says when the authors use Mosaic law in the New Testament, what they're doing is they're using it to help the community understand how love concretely expresses itself. How love concretely expresses itself. What does love look like in this situation? The law will help you. That's, it explains how law happens. And that includes us helping us to understand what does biblical love look like in this place? Because in Romans 8.10, it says, love is the fulfillment of the law. If you love God and you love other people, you are by default keeping the law because you're fulfilling the law. If you're walking in love, you're keeping the law by default. You may not even be thinking about the law. You're keeping the law. Because if you're walking in love, the law is fulfilled in your life. I hope we see that. But the law does inform our love. It helps shape the contours of how we love other people in a way that makes our love biblical and Christ-like. And in that sense, the law is important. Now, getting back to how this abolishing of the law impacted the Jews and Gentiles, this law of love would not be consistent with separating Israel from the rest of the world. The law of love is not going to separate the Jews and the Gentiles. It brings people together. Also, abolishing the Mosaic law meant that gospel-believing Jews wouldn't be under any legal requirement to observe socially divisive ceremonial food laws, or things like that would divide. So that cultural divide that the law has between Jew and Gentile, gone, because it's the law of love which brings people together. So if you're a Jew, and you see a particularly scuzzy-looking mold on the interior wall of the house, you're going to say, I love you, brother, and that's not going to bother me. That's, that's the point. Okay, 
The other thing is it's going to drain the pride from the Jews because they no longer uniquely possess the Jewish law because the Jewish law has been nullified. That's how abolishing the law brings Jew and Gentile together. Now, the third question this text raises is, how does Christ's death on the cross abolish the law of Moses? So we're, in a sense, it's almost logically prior to have done this one before. How does Christ's death on the cross abolish the law of Moses? We've hinted at it before, but two ways. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. One way the blood of Jesus on the cross abolishes the law of Moses is Christ's blood pays the penalty for the forgiveness of our sins. And that means law no longer has any claim on us. The law can no longer legally condemn believers because believers have been forgiven of all their law-breaking sins. Cleared. We're cleared of all of them. So the law cannot condemn us. The second way the cross abolishes the law is a little bit more complicated, but it's important. It's in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Well, what does it mean to have died to the law? Paul uses that phrase all the time, especially in Romans. What does that mean? Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about our union with Christ. Through faith, believers have been made one with Christ, and that union with Christ is so profound, it means that in the mind of God, we were actually united to Christ when he walked this earth, when he died on a cross, and when he rose again. That's how profound this union is. In the mind of God, he sees us in Christ during every bit of Christ's life and death and resurrection. And that's important for us to remember because that means that on the cross, Jesus received the full penalty of the law that the law could exact for our sin. And he took upon himself our sins and paid the legal penalty that we deserved for them. That's called penal substitution. But once he died under the legal penalty of our sin, and that penalty had been paid in full, he was released from the law because he'd paid the penalty for it. The law had no more on him either. So just Jesus received all the punishment the law required for our sin, and it's in that sense that he died to the law. He did everything he needed to do. He paid all the penalty for all the sin of, of his church. And because we were united with him on the cross, when he died to the law, we died to the law too. That means the law has no more legal hold on us. So the penalty the law requires for sin has been paid in full, and the obligation we have to the law has been totally fulfilled. We have fulfilled the law by virtue of our union with Christ. That's the answer to how Christ's death on the cross abolishes the law of Moses, by forgiving us of our sins and by the fact that the law no longer has a legal hold on us because we're united with Christ and therefore dead to the law. That's how the blood of Christ does that. But there's one more question. Just hang in there. I know I have absolutely filled you to the brim, but there's one more question, and that is, why? Why did, why did God do this? That's the question he answers. Why did God, through his son's death on the cross, choose to unite Jew and Gentile? Well, you could very easily answer for his glory, because that's always the right answer when you're asking a question why God does something. But that's not the answer Paul gives here. He gives a different reason why God did this. 
God's specific purpose for doing this, uniting Jew and Gentiles, in the second half of verse 15. He says that Jesus brought Gentiles into union with the Jews for this purpose, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. This is one of the most profound truths in the New Testament, and yet it's the wording. It's hard to understand what he's talking about here. What he's saying is, now that this barrier between Jew and Gentile is gone, Paul says that Christ did not simply take this mix of races and create a hybrid church made up of Jew and Gentile. That's not what he did. This was not a Jew-tile church where the Jews and Gentiles were smashed together to form some sort of mongrel church with Jew and Gentile. Simply uniting the races into one group was not God's purpose. What Jesus did was this. He took the Jews and he took the Gentiles, and from the union of them, he created another new and distinct third race. That's what scholars call it. The union of the two races is bigger than the sum of its parts. This church that he's created is neither Jew nor Gentile nor a mixture of the two. He says it is one new man in place of the two. One new humanity in place of the two. What Jesus did is he created a new humanity with himself as the head. Think of it this way. Before the cross, there was one fallen, unredeemed human race. Had Jews, had Gentiles. And the head of that human race is Adam. Before Christ, all of humanity was in some way in Adam. But when Jesus came and died on the cross, he created a new humanity, which is the race of Christ, not Adam. The church is the new man. The church is the new humanity created in Christ to live in unity with one another with Christ as our head. Are you beginning to understand this is a really big deal? God created this mixed-race church, a new and much-improved, redeemed, forgiven, united to Christ, human race was formed. Christ was formed. United to Christ, human race was formed. A new humanity that is destined to one day see their salvation completed when they are glorified and made like Jesus and reign with him, united in one body on his Father's throne. Now, there is more to say about this But let's think about how these deep theological truths impact us on a daily basis. So if you're one of those people that you've been out in the ether and you're circling around, come back now. Join the party again, because we're talking now about, so what does this mean to me? Here we go. I'm going to give you two. First, because our reconciliation with other people was purchased with the blood of Jesus, we must prize and strive to maintain unity in Christ's body, the church. Now, I'm sure you noticed that I expanded the application of this beyond Jew and Gentile to anyone in the church. It hardly makes sense to say that Jesus' death purchased the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, but every other interpersonal relationship is reconciled in some other way. Every other conflict is solved by some other means. The cross unifies all believers in, in part because it puts us all on equal footing. And that removes all the ground for pride, and pride is what divides people. The old saying is, the ground at the cross, 
the foot of the cross is level ground. We're all equals, and that makes unity possible. And that leveling, of course, was accomplished on the cross by Jesus. But even more importantly, as we've seen, the Spirit unites all genuine believers in Christ. And that unity is only possible by what the cross did in forgiving us and restoring our fellowship with God in Christ. Paul was particularly concerned about Jews and Gentiles because in the first century that was a huge deal. And this text does apply certainly to racial reconciliation. But what is true on a racial level must also be true on a smaller interpersonal level. That means that when we're tempted to break off relationships with another believer, with a brother or sister, when we're tempted to snub because we're upset, maybe we remain emotionally aloof or become openly hostile with a brother or sister, we have to remember the truth that on the cross, Jesus purchased with his own blood our reconciliation with one another. If Jesus purchased our oneness, our reconciliation, our unity with other believers with his blood, that would explain why in the New Testament there is so much emphasis on unity in the church. And there is. Even later in Ephesians, Paul tells us in 4.3 that believers are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity with one another is something that Paul is saying, strive eagerly passionately to maintain that unity. This is implied also in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where three times, three significant individual times, he prays for the unity of the church, more than he prays for anything else in that high priestly prayer. We're reminded by Paul today that unity is, is a priority not simply because it's unseemly for people in the body of Christ not to get along. No, the huge reason unity in the church is so crucial to Jesus and the New Testament authors is because Jesus purchased our unity with his blood. And you know the value of something by what is paid for it. You know how much God values unity in the church by what he gave for it. And he gave the blood of his son. And that should shape our understanding of unity in the church. And that understanding implies that in the church, we never create unity. This is really important. Church unity is not something we could ever create. Jesus created the unity. He created and he established that unity on the cross. That's why Paul later on from 4.3, the command is to preserve, to maintain the unity he purchased. Unity is standard equipment on the church. It comes that way from the creator. The church is by nature a unified body. The only way that unity is broken is if we through our sin choose to fracture the unity that Christ purchased with his blood. So disunity or sinful conflict is an aberration to the very nature of the church. That means that open self-centered conflict in the church is a sin against the blood of Jesus. When we stand aloof from one another, or we gossip about one another, we look down our nose at one another, or do anything that creates disunity, we are tearing down the unity that Christ purchased with his own blood. And that's why Paul says, strive to maintain the unity that he purchased. Second, in the grace of God, believers have been freed from the law. We went, I want to camp out here for a minute because this is such a glorious truth, and we don't think enough about this. This is a great gospel text, even in the midst of all the complicated stuff, because it reminds us that the law which condemns sinners has been taken out of the way for believers. 
Now just think for a minute about the significance of this at the judgment. When the unredeemed sinner stands before God, irrespective of their fame or notoriety, their wealth, their station in life, how impressive they were in this life, that unredeemed sinner will be standing face to face with the holy law of God that condemns them before God. They will experience the absolutely immeasurable agony and terror of seeing that the standard for heaven, which they assumed was some perverse scale of their good deeds outweighing their bad deeds, instead they're going to be met with the harsh reality that the standard for eternal, for eternal life is perfect obedience to the law of God. And to their horror, they will see that even the most moral, ethical person on a human level dismally fails God's standard. For the sinner at the judgment, it will be a little bit like a man who's in the army, let's say, and the promotion list comes out. And he's had a pretty good quarter. He thinks he's going to be on the promotion list. And so he walks up kind of expecting to see his name on the promotion list. Instead, not only is his name not on the list, there's a note that says, Private Ross will be dis discharged with dishonor and executed immediately. And the security police are there to take him out and, and blow, blow a hole in his heart. That's what it's going to be like, minor scale, for unbelievers. They're going to be going to heaven thinking they're okay. I've watched a lot of people die. Most of them that are unbelievers think they're going to be okay. God's reasonable about these things. And they're going to be met face to face with the law of God the holy law of God, requiring absolute perfection. They're going to be finding out to their eternal shame just how wicked and dark and how perfectly fitted for hell they are. We need to be thinking about that because these people live all around us. We simply cannot imagine how that person, so confident that his or her life after death is going to be pleasant, will instead see the wrath of God stretched out before them. Eternal wrath of God. So that's what the unbeliever has. But the, the believer, by blessed contrast at the judgment, in line with today's text, will not have the law staring them in the face. The law has for them been removed. And believers will instead see that they are united with Christ, sharing his perfect law-fulfilling righteousness we'll see that in Jesus we have already perfectly kept God's law and will be granted entrance into heaven by God's grace as part of his new human humanity with Christ as the head. And as the new humanity, we will live in a new heaven and a new earth that like us has been completely redeemed and restored by the blood of Jesus. All the vestiges of both sin and sinners are forever banished and we will reign on the throne of God with Christ. All of this because 2,000 years ago, in an utterly unconceivable display of love and grace, Jesus Christ shed his precious, sin-atoning, unity-creating, relationship-reconciling, law-fulfilling blood. If you haven't experienced that union with Christ, Jesus died so that people just like you would not have to experience that horrific surprise at the judgment. You don't want to go there. And you can be spared that by trusting in Christ, being united to him, and getting all the benefits of his perfect life and his sin-atoning death. If that's not you today, you need to do that. 
and anybody here can talk to you about it. You can certainly come up and talk to us when we pray for you. May God grant us the grace to increasingly walk in gratitude and in line with the gospel, with the joy of the Lord as our strength, for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. God, there is so much here, and I know it's in danger of just filling our head with content, and yet, God, this is so rich, and this all impacts us tremendously every day. And so, God, it just, it, it overwhelms us with how good you are and how glorious and wise your plan is and how gracious and merciful and loving you are to have conceived this in eternity past, knowing that it would require the sacrifice of your perfect son. Father, we just bless you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for eternal life. God, fill us with compassion for those people who are going to be met with a very different scene at the judgment if they don't come to Jesus. And God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that you would make that so real to them that they would know that they're staring the law in the face right now and they're condemned. And Father, if there are people here who are believers and who love you, but who struggle with legalistic tendencies, who struggle with trying to be good enough for you, Father, help them to know that that standard's been abolished. And now they're free to love because love is the fulfillment of the law. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.